Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Hello. Good morning and welcome to podcast number three. Yeah, and we have a very special guest today. Yes, so uh, we want to welcome Jonathan Alexander. Welcome. Hey guys, nice to be here. Nice to have you on board. Nice to have you on the podcast. So it will be a, a, a free form. We have a lot of questions for you. Um, uh, it'll, of course, be about AI, how software developers can use, build or apply AI. And you are one that has been doing that. So, and you're also offer speaking at the iPhone podcast. So, well, well, let's get him up and, uh, and ask him some questions for it and share some of your knowledge and experiences with the rest of the, of the audience. So, welcome to uh, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, nice being here. Good. I'll turn on the music because Els is a little in the way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not have the... Yeah, too loud. <laughs> the music playing in the background all the time. Yeah. Hey, welcome. So, uh, Jonathan... Um, do you want to give a small introduction about who you are and how you maybe came to Groningen? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, sure. Um, my name is Jonathan Alexander. I've been doing machine learning for the last 10 years or so, uh, moving from uh, one startup to the next. Been in the last three, were in Bilton in Norway, Cyber in uh, Israel, and now I'm working in Zetab in Seattle. The, co- the, the company is called Cyber? Say bear with a rar. Oh, say bear. Yeah, you spell it like a bear. <laughs> okay. And every every project we had in the uh, in in the company had a, a grizzly or a panda or whatever bear name we could think of, like <laughs> normal software developers name their projects. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, yeah, I actually got to Honigan in a completely random way. I, um, I wanted to do a semester abroad as a student, and I sent an email to every professor in any university that had any relationship with my university. And a very nice professor here, Professor Elo, uh, he was just like, come, we will find you what to do. Uh, we didn't. I, I've been here for six months, had a great time, and I've never came back. I'm actually been here for eight years now, mm-hmm. and uh, I love the city. I love the place. Yeah, and you, you came here for for a semester, but but which that because you sent every professor of every university an email, then so you I wound up here. But which uh, which direction? Which study? Which topic? Well, I actually didn't, uh, I didn't put anything on my request. I was like, I will do whatever you need. I just yeah. want to have a semester abroad. Yeah. And um, yeah, I didn't even know where Honigan was, like um, <laughs> probably more people than should. But uh, yeah, yeah, I got here. Uh, I fell in love with the city. It's uh, an amazing place. It's so clean. And, and, and well, for me, it was also a bit cheap and very comfortable. You can get anywhere and you can have anything you would like in a big city, but still everything is a bike away. Uh, I think it's wonderful. It's such a big change of uh, the life in Israel. Yeah. And you've been working remotely then since the last uh, couple of years? Uh, Yeah, practically my entire career. I didn't start uh, with COVID. Um, The moment I I came here, I opened a company in Honigan and I started working as a consultant remote. And I found this kind of working arrangement where uh, in terms of finance, I'm a contractor, but in terms of the way it feels, I'm an employee. I normally work as a, as a, um, as a machine learning engineer or um, head of data science, but it, I, I integrate with the teams as if I'm an employee. 
culturally that works for me. And the financial contractor thing works for a lot of companies when they need to work remote because it's simpler. Yeah. Awesome. How's that yeah. culture-wise? When integrating, like, even I, I can understand it's easier if you're like, okay, you're a social guy. I mean, you talk easily. I mean, it, I can imagine that it's easier when you just m move into a room and say, "Hi, I'm Jonathan," and uh, it takes a lot less time. But what's your experience in that in that work weight? Entering a remote team, trying to get getting to know everybody, does take a, 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 a really lot more longer time to get really become a part of the team or is that actually quite simple nowadays it's a great question i feel like i was very lucky and in every team i joined i had a very good cultural fit so i can only remember that i met people and immediately felt like i knew them forever so that that is very nice i do think there are many cultural differences between companies abroad, especially when you move from Israel, uh, which is uh, a very intense kind of uh, work style, into something in Europe where it's more like, uh, well, uh, work-life balance. Uh, in Norway, it also was very nice work-life balance. And then I went to work back in Israel. And again, people are texting you at like 10 p.m. about questions and things they need for tomorrow. And uh, now in Seattle, it's uh, weird in terms of the hours. So I do a lot of meetings very late at night. My wife is not a big fan, <laughs> but uh, still works for me. Yeah. yeah. But so I was wondering, so, so you say you did a lot of uh, data science and uh, those kinds of uh, jobs as well. So how did you end up in machine learning? How, how was your trajectory towards uh, AI and machine learning, data science? Um, when I finished my bachelor, I knew that in, uh, in the computer science field, whatever you take your first job, it's normally the momentum to continue in the same uh, profession, the same field is, is very strong. So if you start as a front-end developer, then the next position, you can get a bit more uh, senior in your profession or start from scratch as a junior. And it gets very hard to change. So I decided not to take my first job at the end of my bachelor, and I did a master. And during the master, I wasn't a very academic person, but I, I made a lot of personal projects in different fields. I tried to do front-end, and I was terrible at it. I did some Android development. As, at the time, Android was a bit more cool, I guess. Or maybe it's still cool. I don't know. I don't... I think it's still cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and I, I felt a bit more in place, but I also started playing with some data science and machine learning. And the moment I did a few projects, I was like, yeah, that's, that's going to be my career. What, what year are we talking about? Then? I should know that. Um, I ah, think you? 2015. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you fell in love first. What was it that attracted you to it? Um, I love the combination of solving problems which you don't know how to solve. So you can solve an algorithm where you don't know how to get to the answer, but you can teach a computer to get to the answer, mm -hmm. which I thought was amazing. And there is a place when you solve any kind of data science or machine learning problem where you have to kind of abstractively understand how the data is going to go into the algorithm and how it's going to kind of solve the problem. And this type of like questions I find fascinating. 
exactly how do you take a problem you have if you have users if you have genres what does it mean to the algorithm how do you embed it in a way that a computer can think about it and reason about it and um, that was uh, uh, this was something I was very uh, intrigued by now with the rise of LLMs, then everything is text. It's going as text and getting out of text and most of this kind of abstract thinking going into the algorithm. But I think there is still a lot of room for it and uh, I still find it fascinating. Yeah. And if you look back at the, uh, um, your career starting 2015, of course, you, you started with kind of like the data science. Uh, how, is, how is your daily, how did your daily work, your daily work change over these last couple of years? switch from data size more like the tools have probably changed a lot right um but if you look at your day your daily the things that you do and do on a daily basis can you explain a little bit what changed over the last eight years in that regard um i think what you do really depends on the type of company you are and the type of problems you're solving i was extremely lucky that on my first company my job was to just be on top of everything there is to be on top of. So every day, everything that was published, every new platform, algorithm, technology, package, I would try it out and see what it does and where, what its pros and cons. And that was a big part of just my day-to-day -day was just trying things. Well, that, and that's not possible anymore today, right? It's, just, it's too much, I guess, right? <laughs> yes and no. Oh, okay. <laughs> to be on top of all the academic research is impossible. Yeah. There's so much things are happening. But it's not that difficult to see the maturity of the level of the technology that just came out and see if it's something you could use. I'm, I'm yeah. very oriented into practicalities. So if you have an algorithm, but you need distributed GPUs to run it, then it's irrelevant for a lot of different use cases. But if you have a platform who just provides, provides it as an API, then maybe I will try it out and see what it does and compare it to other solutions. I think this is a fascinating time because LLMs lets you play with a lot of uh, hardware and software you won't be able to do yourself and get like a higher level interaction with your own models. But nevertheless, if you don't understand exactly what you're doing, you're falling all to the same pitfalls that you have if you just don't normalize your data or let your train and test kind of mix around. You still can get those type of mistakes and issues and get the same kind of architectural solutions that uh, fall apart when you put them into production. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're still staying on top of all different kinds of practical tools that you can use? I try. Normally, on a daily basis, I would spend between one or two hours just going over all the newsletters and skim them up. And I just press the link. And normally, the first page tells you a lot about what it is and what's going to be the difference between this one and another one. But yeah, I definitely can't just read everything and go in depth of everything that is going on. Yeah, it's a tsunami in information and <laughs> definitely. tools. Yes. What surprised you the most recently? Recently, or you know, past year. Oh, that's a great question. I, I, because I, I don't get surprised that often. So I'm trying to think what the last thing I was surprised of. I'm currently in Zetup. I'm really diving in into the whole uh, data version in field, and I'm looking into a lot of the best practices and the, all the different technologies you have, and I notice that there are a lot of like benefits and best practices which no one is doing. And I find that fascinating 
that we have all of these great ideas and technologies, but it's very difficult and complicated to use. So we just don't. We just skip kind of those and try to move it into different kind of platforms and split our technologies around. Um, yeah, I didn't answer your question though very much. No, you find it fascinating. It didn't surprise you, but it's an interesting topic, I think. You say that the, um, are you suggesting we're forgetting uh, like uh, lessons from the past and how we do our profession? No, definitely not. I think, I think there are a lot of room for growth. I think, w first of all, with the LLMs, the hype is, is taking the train very fast. So we find ourselves kind of ignoring a lot of best practices and we can move from POC to production as long as we're only using kind of, again, text to text. Um, you can look at something uh, like embedded vector databases. You can see now all the times because people are going to embed all of their text and they have to use it for, um, for in-context uh, questions. So when you use LLMs, when you want to answer a question about uh, some information you have on files, <coughs> what you often do is you need to get your question, get, um, get text that has the answer, and when construct a query that has the answer and the question in one go, and then the LLM can handle it. So there are so many tools that help you kind of figure out this entire uh, process. But in reality, still using like Shinglin or BM25 can be much faster and more scalable. And then with the much smaller kind of text fields, you can do those embedding questions later. So the hype definitely is pulling us into those kind of vector databases and all kind of tools that help you kind of program, but doesn't scale as much. So I think that's one interesting aspect that we're probably going to see um, develop a more optimized kind of databases and processes and architectural solutions like we have with, let's say, recommendation engines and, yeah. and, and other kind of architectures like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a technical direction. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, super uh, relevant and interesting. You, you, you mentioned Xetup now a couple of times. <laughs> maybe maybe you want to explain a little bit what Xetup does and and what you do at Xetup. Sure. Um, Zetup is a platform that provides data versioning uh, the same as Git and sort of with the scale of S3. So you can think about it that if you work with Git, Git does not handle files and big files very well. It inherently, the way it inherently saves history, make it, uh, make it completely irrelevant in terms of saving files and iterating over them and changing them. For that, you have all kind of tools. Zetup is a platform that kind of replace that so you can it looks and feels like Git, but behind the scene, it just also handle your files uh, like S3 would. So you can think about it that you just work on Git and you just save your file and push them to the cloud and they're just there. And you can download them from your server the same way you would from S3. Yeah, uh, this is data files, right? Not not your source code and stuff like that. But but it has also your source code. So your source code, your models, your logs, your data files, all of it, you can just have it at one place. And when you work on it, it looks and feels local because you have everything mm -hmm. local. Everything is in directories. But at the end, after you push it, 
kind of like with Git, everything is up in the cloud. So you can download it from the server, you can match the code that you wrote for a model and then, and then kind of match it with the model itself and the data. I can give you a few examples of how, how important that is. Obviously, reproducibility is very important. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to kind of rerun things and make sure and evolve your data and evolve your modeling. But think about the question that you have a model in production and then the regulator comes and say, hey, did, in this model, did you use um, information from Russia? Or, or is there any tweets from kids here? Well, it's not okay anymore. And then you don't even know how to answer that question. So in big organizations, they just make a snapshot of the entire data set and they kind of link it somewhere, maybe with their own kind of solution or with kind of a login system like weight and biases or aim which is an open source similar tool and then you can go and check which snapshot had it and then you go to the snapshot and explore it but if you use any type of data versioning tool you can just check out the branch with the model and you have the code who made it and you have the data there and you have everything you need and then you can just well create a new branch filter the data retrain your model and you're done so everything is together. It can make it much cleaner. Um, also, if you change technology often enough, you have to add all kind of flags. If you're on this model, download this and do this and do this pre-processing. But you don't do it in software. In software, you just have the code that runs. So here, one of the examples we did, we took FastChat, which is a GitHub that allows you to use, uh, to compare a lot of different machine learning kind of LLMs in a chat and you can run it locally. And if you try to download the weights for the day, for the models, it, it takes you a while. It's a very complicated um, process. You need to download them. You need to calculate the delta. You need to combine them. So I made a version of it where you just check out the branch with that model and then the weights are there. They're just waiting for you. So it looks exactly like fast chat. But, you, but instead of downloading the models, you just check it out. And the scripts always look at the same folder, to the same files, to everything is the same. So you have way less flags, way less code, less way, less way documentations, and so on. So these are a few examples of how you can use kind of data versioning to manage the kind of training part of your machine learning process. Mm -hmm. But then you also have it on the deployment part, where it's important that you can download your model Normally we manage it with kind of complicated URLs. So you are on S3 project data bucket slash prod slash V1 slash moon phase slash date slash file. You actually do manage it, but with those complicated URLs and you need to share them. And, and this is a lot of friction in a big team, but it's nice that it's like on your repo, it just slash models model and everything else is managed by Git. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, so so uh, you mentioned that data versioning is good for reproducibility and stuff like that. Do you also think that it could help with something like transparency and, and things like that? Because if you look at, for example, OpenAI, they don't really tell talk about what kind of data they filtered out from uh, from the big data sets that they scrape from the web and uh, things like that. But maybe this could help with saying, hey, this is the filtering that we've done and things like that. Well, I don't, I don't think it's going to change the way companies approach uh, sharing their data. I think within an organization, it can help a lot because, again, you can build a new solution and you can reference different data sets 
more easily, and you can explore it more easily, you can um, get to it very easily within an organization, but I can't imagine organization, organizations normally hold for their data for dear life. It's actually, again, one of the great benefits of data versioning is that sometimes people don't want to do any changes to their, to their data because they're afraid to lose it. But the moment you have Git on top of it, then you can do whatever. You can delete it and then you can revert and you can get it back and you can check it out. So I don't think it will help with transparency, but I do think it can help with observability and kind of shareability within an organization. Yeah, cool. And for the listeners uh, at home, Xetup uh, is spelled X-A-T-H-U-B. Yes, exactly. Setup. And is it like, uh, um, uh, where is it uh, located? Where is it from? The company is located in Seattle. And interesting that it, it, it sounds a bit like in a, a superset of a GitHub or Git or GitHub, GitLab, kind of a comparable with an additional layer for kind of AI workflows um, where data is like a first class citizen in which you say know, data is also something that you need to version or work on and get history and, uh, and, uh, and branching and, and things like that, right? Um, uh, do I understand you correctly there? Is it like uh, you just clone, clone repos or is it like a graphical, graphical interface in which you work and then get your stuff or what does it look like? Well, it looks exactly like Git in many ways, maybe with a bit of a more purple theme. But, um, <laughs> but it look Git like in GitHub or GitLab or? Um, or Git, Git is, is a series of tools. So you GitHub is one, GitLab is another one, and yeah. ZHub is another one. But yeah. you can also integrate it as if you would do LFS or DVC. So you can have um, maybe a sub-module of just the data. So it, it really depends on your use case. Sometimes you want to have a separation of concerns. So you want to have a repo for data and a repo for models and a repo for logs and a repo where you can even say, uh, save your Docker image, for example. Or you want to have a single repo where you have every, everything. So for example, if I would do um, a research in the academy and I don't care too much about CICD and using um, special compute or anything like that, I just want to have a place where all the people who work on the project can kind of share, make issues, share the data, share the models, share the instructions, share the LaTeX and the PDFs, then you, you probably just want to use a single repo and setup for it. Yeah, so there's a command line tool for it. I assume, check out your repo, branch it, work on it, go back in history, things like that. Exactly. Well, most of it you just use Git, so you install Git Z, and then you just run normal Git operations and it just works. So it's behind the scene. There is also a PyZ, uh, Python package, which is kind of like what you would use Butu for. So to upload and download. Oh, Boto, bot like B-O-T-O, right? Yeah, that's the yeah. AWS S, um, client yeah. that you normally use for a lot of S3 integrations. So if you want to upload, you want to download, you want to LS, you want to get some information, you want to run any type of ETLs, um, that's what it's for. What is interesting is, of course, this is kind of like an, one of the questions we ask, okay, how did your tool set change over the years? You started in 2015 and then you started working on it. The, the tool set changed. This seems like one of those tools that are new to the, if you're like a software developer, this is like more and more software developers will uh, be confronted with these kinds of tools. Right? This seems like one of these new tools in the toolbox that many developers will be confronted with because they need to do new things when developing systems or designing systems or, um, 
Am I correct? How do you see that in the in the in the change of tool, the change in tools that you've been using over the years? How does this one fit in? Well, absolutely. I think there is um, a few different trends that we see that will continue. I think there is one for data frames. The Netherlands is actually ex uh, excellent with making data frames. We had uh, the Vex team for here from Honigen, and we have Polars and DuckDB is not a data frame, but it's also from the Netherlands. And I think um, there is a view that as data frames move from just exploration to transformation and now into kind of a, be a big part, of, a big integral part of machine learning, there has to be kind of an adjustment so you can see how uh, those things change. I think there are more obviously a big lean into uh, machine learning in uh, into deep learning, which you can see with LLMs where it's important to be able to optimize and run on GPUs and kind of be able to play with it. But um, I believe, and this, I don't know if it's controversial, but I believe the deep learning kind of technologies of today are still not as mature. I think they are very low level with the amount you want to use. They're all kind of excellent wrappers with like FastAI and Ludwig, but often enough, you just, you need hundreds of lines of code to write something which you know in your head very simply. Scikit-learn is an alternative which is which is more mature, but it doesn't scale uh, as much because you have to hold everything in memory often enough unless you want to implement yourself kind of an iterative online or batch learning. So you have to deal with it yourself. In that regard, I think those are kind of going to change as well. But now Mojo is coming, so maybe all the Python things are going to become much more scalable soon enough. Uh, Rust was running behind the scene to kind of take a hold of all of this kind of data analysis and data transformations. But uh, I, I, I'm holding my fingers for Mojo. I think it's a pretty cool project. Uh, if people never heard of it, it's a superset of Python that is just now kind of getting its first steps outside in the wild. And uh, you can write everything you want in Python, but you can also optimize it in such a way that um, it runs way more efficiently and it auto-tune itself and it can parallelize and it doesn't have a lot of the weaknesses that Python have in terms of speed. And uh, I think the third trend that we'll see is data versioning as it becomes easier. I think it was a bit of a niche where people use it, data scientists, where they want to kind of manage just their models and everyone kind of realized how important data is and they're trying to kind of figure out how to do it in the most simplistic way. I think in data versioning, there is a very good question, which is what it means to merge. So when I tell you to merge code, you, you kind of imagine that the rows, uh, kind of figure out which rows of code work with which rows and everything needs to compile. But what is merge for a model? So often enough, if, you, if, your training, uh, if your training solution is a whole training, when you train everything from scratch every time, then it's probably merge is just override. But if you have um, an online learning, then maybe your merge is kind of partial fit. And that is true for a lot of different aspects. So if you have a system like um, an ETL, then uh, maybe a nice best practice to have is one of the design patterns we, we kind of worked with is where you put every, every time you get new data, you put it in kind of a raw branch. So this is the raw place. You can't delete it. You can't destroy it. And then when you have an ETL, you just end with a clean branch. And that is something data scientists have been doing for years. But instead of actually do it manually every time, you just you write 
a script that move it from one branch to another, kind of in an ETL system. And when you get a new, um, new few rows or a new image, the processing goes automatically and the data scientists just walk with a branch that is always cleaned. And if you need to change it at any point, you just go from the raw and you write a new ETL and sort of. So you get this evolving data approach that I think is going to become more prominent as time goes by and people are going to try it and, and see how it feels like. But there's still a lot of complexity to it. I think different tools have different amount of complexity to them. So if you use, for example, DVC, then almost every every line of code you write in Git, you write twice. So you add <laughs> you add it to DVC and then you add it yourself. And then you commit it and then you commit DVC and then you push and then you push it twice. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you get more to LFS and Zetab who are very similar in terms of you just write your Git things. But when you deal with data, well, Normally, you just append or add, you upload or download. That's a way more common use case, and we should really adjust. And I see this becoming a very integral part of building solutions, uh, much more automated and easier to kind of manage and understand, and the more best practices are coming out and will help people kind of figure all of these things that are coming out with these new technologies that are out there now. Sounds like a lot of um, um, the, the tool set that you're using really depends on your context, uh, on your context, right? So um, if you're working um, like in academia, then you use different so tool set than you're working in um, in business or whether you're working on mobile apps then you're using yet again a total different uh, tool set. Um, so it really depends on the context, what, time, what kind of tools you're using, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Your tech stack is critical and it has it has to match uh, the goals that you want to do and what you want to achieve. And the way you would work with data versioning with it will also has to be related to the way you get your data, the way you play with it. Um, I think those are great questions. Some of my favorites is about how do you choose the right technology, the right database, the right architecture, the right solution. I think those are where um, those questions are not as easy as they seem. Sometimes you you build those uh, feature stores. Um, if you haven't heard on feature stores, it's kind of like, it's more of an architectural kind of solution than an actual store where you just build features. Mm -hmm. It's how you kind of set up your database to provide the features you need online, offline for your training and for prediction, and how you kind of organize all of those things together. And it really depends kind of what type of uh, solution. So, for example, if you think about something like predicting tweets, then you need to get like from the tweet and all the people you follow and which tweets are kind of be, uh, what tweets are candidates to be presented and then how do you merge them together? And if you want to have information that relates to the type of people you follow or the subjects or your journals, how do you, inf how do you build a solution that take all of those things into considerations and how do you update it every hour or, or online? Which features are online? Which features are, are batched? Maybe you want to embed your data first and then every hour you just create a new embedding and then some other features you have really online uh, and then you need another database like Redis or something to kind of have those features come in very fast on prediction. Those type of questions I find very interesting to kind of answer and which stack would provide you for, with those solutions. I think that in a few years that will be um, that will be democratized 
much further. I think today, if you want to build big machine learning models or big complicated recommendation engines, you need to have a real enterprise solution and teams working on it. And as technologies are going to get cheaper and easier to use, and more people are going to start building more uh, complex solutions, the technologies who make it and the infrastructure for it is going to get cheaper and easier to use as well. That, yeah, uh, super uh, interesting. Uh, so, so I was listening to you talk about like uh, versioning the models and merging the models. So do you consider setup also to be part of the ML ops sphere? It's a good question about how you look at it. Um, is S3 part of your uh, your sphere? I guess, I guess it is. Then in that regard, ZApp is, and those data versions are going to go into MLOps. MLOps is an interesting aspect because often enough, it's DevOps for data purposes. But data is a bit weird. I think people think about data mining as if it's you always go and just get more data and it's the same. But in reality, or in... in uh, in, uh, in my view, it's more like a garden. So you, you don't know exactly what you're going to get. Sometimes your assumptions about your data change. Sometimes your models change the way people interact with your platform and you get kind of drift from what you had with your original data sets and the new ones. So you, to be on top of all of it, you also need a lot of observability, which also becomes now a big part of the ML stack. And a lot of original MLOps tooling are just DevOps who trying to do like servers that runs machine learning models. And today we kind of realize, oh, the data really adjust and change kind of like your code. You constantly need to maintain it and figure it out and improve it and iterate over it. And as MLOps tools are getting more and more uh, experience with, the f with what they need to deal with, you can see kind of how they adjust and become less DevOpy and more machine learning-y, I guess you can <laughs> call it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, as a gliding scale, possibly. Um, it, it, for, what, what would you say would be like the, um, how much work is it, is a, um, if you do like a, a practical uh, machine learning uh, a project, how much of it is really mangling data, treating data, getting the data? What percentage of a project will be about really about data instead of choosing the architecture, training models, things like that? and. That's a, What's what you guess? What's your what you gut feeling? Well, it, it really depends on what data and what problems you're solving. So if your data comes really nicely, neat in a parquet file... Yeah, but, but across you, the, you, you've seen many projects. So across the board, all these projects, what is your practical experience and what kind of percentages really about getting the data, getting the, cleaning the data, mangling it? At so the beginning of my career, the cleaning and mangling of data took a big chunk of it. But as time grew by, I kind of have my own kind of tooling and, and, and experience. And I just, um, I find that to take about, on an average case, can be a take a day or two where I just figure out everything I want to know. Just look at the data, kind of design the solution in my head, maybe write an architectural kind of a diagram of what I want. And that will take one or two days for me. Again, depends on, on which data you use. And then you start iterating, maybe one or two days about iteration of models, hyperparameters, kind of different uh, workflows. And then the deployment is often the longest part. So 
the moment you want to put it. Often enough, I like to just create a Docker and then pass it to someone else, so it's his problem. In most cases, um, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can do that. But sometimes uh, I've been asked to also deploy the Docker myself, and then the question is, do you put it on, uh, on Lambda or on kind of uh, Fargate? I, I, I use, recently I've been using S3 for, for the last few years. Before that, I used a bit of GCP, but I bet the platform has changed a lot since the last time I, I've used it. So I think there is a gap that I also expect to be getting smaller with time which is between doing your POC exploration uh, and modeling and moving that into production today because of um, the way that a lot of data frames are designed, machine learning models are designed, there is this gap. So you do the exploration, you kind of build an ad hoc modeling and you kind of figure out what you want. And then you need to go to from your Jupyter into your IDE or PyCharm or visual code and, um, and start writing classes and cleaning and processes and tests. And I think a lot of it could be kind of automated. And it's a good question if the tools are gonna be, uh, are gonna get better, or we're just gonna go like LLM, look at my Jupyter, write, uh, write me classes and put it in production for me, and he will figure it out. I recently, uh, I'm not a big fan of SQL. I recently wanted to implement uh, a, a login package I noticed that I wanted to do some benchmarks and every time I had to save a CSV and it was a bit, it, was, it wasn't very clean. So I made a small package called Zetrack, which you just track whatever you want. You just give it a bunch of values and it put them in a table for you and it figures everything out. And I used DuckDB and SQL behind the scene and I managed to do it with learning very little about, about the technologies themselves. You just write, how do I add a column with DuckDB and SQLite and, uh, and you just get a copy-paste answer, and you, you copy-paste it, and it does surprisingly well. And all of a sudden, you, kinda, you can start asking more and more complicated questions, and you get a weird error, and you just write it back into, the, into your favorite AI chatbot, and it gives you a very nice answer. And I found myself programming with languages I don't know, putting dockers um, with all kind of elements that you still need to be able to verify what you wrote. You don't mm -hmm. want to just delete your own computer by accident, which is a fascinating aspect about how uh, LLMs are going to go into cybersecurity, if you, we want to talk about it later. But it does make the Googling much shorter and the copy-pasting much more deliberate. And as you get better at prompting, I'm running on OSX, and this package does not compile when I run this thing, what to do? Bam, <laughs> you just get five lines that you copy paste and, and they kind of solve all of your problems. Would you be comfortable to put like, when you build a tool, a package with, uh, with your prompting and uh, you copy paste all these things, would you be comfortable to put that into production, actual production <laughs> software where people <laughs> really use it? Uh, yeah, huh? so <laughs> I, you write tests and you, and you try to, <laughs> Hopefully you still understand what you copy paste, so you didn't blindly put it in. But I think it's more about kind of managing, uh, wrangling the information you need to solve your problem into your exact need and kind of set it up for you for success. I'm not feeling like it's important. So there is, here is an interesting kind of cybersecurity attack that people found. Some people noticed that um, if you ask a chatbot about a certain software problem, it gives you a random package that does not exist. 
So they ran and implemented that package in a way that kind of hack your computer. Hmm. And then everyone who used, who had that problem and got that prompt and got that package downloaded it and and kind of installed sort of a virus. Now those guys, they did it kind of like in, in a nice way. Like they, they want to prove that it's a problem that didn't actually uh, uh, made any damage to, pe to people's computer. But I think like th those are kind of things we have to start considering, the sort of version of fake news <coughs> of so software. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, I think you're right in saying that whatever you, it, uh, it it suggests you, you will have to check it for yourself whether it's like trust trustable, whether it works or not. Uh, it's, it, it gives you a direction, right? And in that, if I hear you correctly, what you're saying, as a software engineer, uh, where the explore uh, the explorative phase is also becoming more important if you want to build models get well you know you need to you need to build something that gives you the answer that's what you're doing when you're building machine learning solutions right so the exploratory phase is becoming a more important part of the work of a software engineer as, as, as i understand it correctly so the tools that change and in that in those phases something like an element that can give you suggestions and help you out could be maybe which maybe you can you can elaborate on that could give you like some direction some help some insights some ideas um, is that correct well I think so this is um, it's I think it's the bigger question than than it seems I think there is an element here that um, what is data science and what is the job of everyone uh, on that field I feel like normally when I give a talk, I start with, with kind of a description of like data science is a field of providing value out of data. So writing an SQL query, make a decision about where your business goes or writing a machine learning model, or all of those things are kind of under data science. And then you can do the analytics to try to kind of get insights. You can do the machine learning engineering. You can do the MLOps of it. All of those are different aspects. And I think as machine learning becomes easier to use, people need to get more proficient at other elements. And it's very important for people to kind of find where they feel comfortable and they do what they want to do. Because the field is still going to be huge. I don't think that's going to disappear. If else, it's going to get much broader and there will be more things you could do. And in that regard, I don't expect uh, every data scientist to be a software engineer, and I don't expect every software engineer to be able to do data science things. I think there is a good kind of metaphor for it. You can think about uh, if you have a linear regression and it tells you that as you ask more money for the shampoo, you're selling shampoo, then um, you're going to earn more money because it's just a linear model. So you'll go like, okay, every shampoo bottle is going to cost a million euro now. And you are correct, that's the prediction of the model, but actually you are reasonable enough to understand that no one will buy a shampoo for a million euro. Um, but maybe you still want to try it, I don't know. So, so uh, some people will. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so there have been experiments, right, with the, like $999 app, dollar apps in the App Store that don't do anything just to be able to say, hey, I bought the most expensive app. Yeah. But oh, yeah, I. But if you really want to sell something to a large audience, then uh, that's probably not the way to go. But indeed, yeah. So so you have to still use common sense and uh, look at it and uh, reason about what's actually happening based on the models that you uh, train and and put out there. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing it now with LLMs. LLMs look and feel as if they understand what you want from them, but actually 
they just simulate answers that look like <laughs> they yes. know what you want. And I think it creates a lot of kind of hype and excitement. But I think it's also kind of give you, it can easily give you a bit of um, a biased view of what it can and can't do. I remember I was doing uh, this demo where I built an LLM that um, had the powers to kind of talk to a database and run Python and do all these amazing things and go to the internet and answer questions. And then when I actually ran the demo live, I noticed that it went to the database, it ran the query, and then it couldn't figure out the answer, so it just returned 50,000. And I was like, okay. <laughs> just like the number. Yeah, just the number. Because yeah. uh, I asked it how many movies we had, oh. and it made an SQL, but something didn't compile correctly, so it just yeah. 50,000, I yeah. guess. Sounds I guess reasonable. That, yeah, it sounds reasonable. It sounds like a right answer, but if you didn't go and look at the reasoning or checked it yourself, yeah. you, would, <laughs> you, you might get confused. Yeah, that's why why reasoning is so so important down the line, and and with the LLMs, you you basically want to understand what's going on, and you want the LLM to be able to ask questions or reason about its own things that it's doing inside, right? So, uh. yeah, absolutely. I think LLM is very interesting in that regard because it it really blurs kind of the 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 area of like what is intelligence what it means to be smart what it means to solve solution what it means to understand it kind of play with all of those kind of elements but i think people kind of underestimate the the human brain it's not that i'm i'm, I'm such a like we humans we're amazing but i have a kid she's a, a year and a half now and she spent like months just doing nothing just looking and then months just moving her hands and kind of uh, wave and smile and figure things out. And she has a very good hardware in her head. So I think you, you train a model for a few months with those transformers and you feel like, oh, it can do everything a chimpanzee can do or whatever. And I'm like, let, <laughs> let, I think a lot of the tasks we're, we're meant to do, that we kind of evolved to do, we are very good at them and we have very good like uh, specialized hardware for it. And I don't think transformers, at least uh, what we have now, they just came out with uh, retention nets, and now we'll see where that goes. But I think it's not, we are not as close as it seems. I think this is something of the field of AI that um, every time we climb this mountain and we think we get to the peak, and then we're like, oh, it's just, just a hill, and we just move the goalpost. At the beginning, we thought, if we just beat people at chess, we're going to have like AI and then we, we did it and we were like, ah, that's, that's, that's not enough. Then we had some with robotics and we have more and more evolved kind of algorithms and we feel like, oh, this is the moment. And I think it's very confusing because if you look at it, it's deceiving. You can think about it that when you are on an exponential curve and if you are on the exponential part of it, you're like, oh my God, it's just going to grow forever. What can we do? But my intuition is, and this is completely opinionated, so here you don't have to trust my word for it. But when I, hear it. <laughs> when I think about how kind of the information we have, just all the information we have, text, images, sounds, podcasts, all of it, versus, again, like a child just looking and listening and smelling and doing everything all the time, I think the type of information we have, just the information that exists in the Internet is kind of, it's still limited. And I expect it to, like, it's curved really high now. I think it's going to curve back down when it's going to reach 
Okay, so we're going to have an AI that is as good as every doctor, as good as all the doctors, 10 times as good as all the doctors. But does it even exist to be a thousand times better? Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe all the information in the internet can't teach to be a thousand times be better than uh, the best, all the doctors together. And I think that question is kind of like we're sitting on the exponential part where machine learning LLMs, they start teaching themselves and they find all of kind um, immersing capabilities, which are kind of like things that we learn that we can test that they can do. But I expect that it's start going to go the other way and kind of have kind of a tungus weight, uh, not, not a, a tungus, a logistic function to it where it, it rolls up and then it's going to rolls and kind of straight away to a certain point. But I might be wrong and AGI will be around the corner in 10 years and it will be very angry with me. Yeah, it might be that um, <laughs> an interesting take on the, on the topic, but it's a, it's a kind of like a philosophical topic. Uh, but it's also about whether, if the, if the goal is well, how, how compared to human general intelligence, how far are we or is it similar? That's one question, to, uh, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, okay, this is what we practically have nowadays. How useful is it for our daily task at the moment? Um, it's very hard to tell. We're not very, we're not even close to having a decision on whether is this is the road to AGI or not. As he said, it's trained on total, totally different data set. It has totally different sensory inputs. So the total, our brain is made for a 3D world with this gravity, with this surrounding, with sensors, with eyes, vision, hearing. That's what this brain is for. That's what it's, and so that's where, where it's very good at. This new kind of brain we're building with AI is a totally different beast. Um, whether they're in the same direction or will lead up to the same kind of what we call intelligence is very up to grabs, uh, of course, at the very moment. Um, we can spend another total uh, podcast on that, I would, I would say. Um, but I, but what I find interesting, knowing the limitations of w what we have built up till now, what can we do with it? Is it and how, tr well, uh, what are the pitfalls? What are the usabilities of those, those things? Um, so both tracks are very interesting, but both are kind of like a, if you if you read the public discussion, there is they're either on the large, on the AGI side of things, oh AGI and it's, it can't reason, so you can't trust it, and there, and while they're on the other end, there's a whole industry applying these tools because they're already quite practical and usable for a lot of things, mm -hmm. and um, um, and it's like the this the, um, it's either you or your one end, and most discussions diverge into one of, in in either of those, right, and. Um, I'd love to talk deeper into the one of of, uh, of those, but talking about the, the practical side of things, in the, as we're uh, doing in this podcast, you say that if you think about a solution, then you start you make an architecture in your head. So I'm thinking you know all these tools, you know all the limitations, but you don't know them all because it's just too much. What are you then thinking about? What is can you take a little bit on that journey? What's in your head? Do you think about kind of models or architectures or tools or experiences what is it what what happens in your head when you start thinking about a solution you get a problem you say okay i need a, what can i use as a solution what goes in your what goes on in your head at the moment that's a great question um i think first thing i do when i get any problem uh, i talk to whoever gives me the problem either the ceo cto the product and I ask them, if I give you a crystal ball who can do anything you want, what do you want to see at the end? What is the answer? Buy, not buy. Likes toys, likes TVs. What, what is the answer you want to see at the end? And then I try to think, what is, what is the information 
that could lead for that decision in any way, any type of relationship, any type of features, any type of elements, things that we could like embed, collect, and figure it out. The moment I have what you want to add, what you want to get at the end, and what information is out there up for grabs or your company is already collecting and so on, then how do you put it all the information together in a way that is as meaningful as I can prep it for the AI? So people imagine, and there was a time of great hype of, for um, AutoML uh, technologies, which is was mostly eventually end up being a lot of good hyperparameter kind of tooling, creating more features, running more optimizations, but it didn't just solve the problem to the extent that people expected it to, because again, data is, is a garden. There's just new things are coming. You get a timestamp and sometimes it's days and sometimes it's Unix and sometimes it's Unix as strings and you can't figure out all of these different things ahead of time. So it didn't end up being the one killer process that does everything. So a big part of it is really, also for LLMs, you wanna clean it and make it as nice as possible and kind of organize the data for the question and get all the information that is needed before you actually go and ask the question. So one of it is to organize all the data in a way that makes sense. And then you need to implement it and see how, how effective it is. How do you want to encode the categories? How do you want to uh, break the text? Do you want to find keywords? Do you want to make it into embeddings? If you want to use an embeddings, do you want to use um, like a small model for it so it will be quick or a big one so it will be accurate? Or maybe you want to take something and then fine tune it, which can really help uh, often enough. So if you have those strings that turn into embeddings and, and categories and you have other flows, you need to normalize them. Can you normalize it in one go or can you, or you have to normalize it in batches? These type of questions are all changing the type of stack that you're going to use, the tools you're going to use, and how you're going to put all of these things together. So the moment I kind of know what you want to get and what is my starting point in terms of data, then I choose the technologies and sometimes I take advantage of it. I often enough take advantage of it to try something I haven't tried before. I have a very long to-do list of technologies and things I want to try. <laughs> it is very long and I really want to go over it, but every day I just see more things and they are added up. So. Um, you pick kind of a technology and you can uh, try it together and you see what you get. And sometimes um, the data is just not good enough. I think that's another misconception. So here is a funny story. I was doing a consultancy for a, for a company who was se selling uh, cars through the, uh, uh, through the web. And they had no information about the users ahead of time. You don't buy a lot of cars. You buy maybe one. And when you browse, you don't actually sign in. So they knew nothing about the users. And they asked me to rank the cars in a way that you could um, recommend per user a car. So I took everything they did have. And I ran some uh, modeling. And I end up coming saying there is no such thing. Different people need different cars. Um, there is no a ranking does not exist that prov based on the data you have that will give you any kind of a good result. And I came up with some alternatives. You can have, here are the most diverse cars or most popular cars, 
and then maybe another nearest neighbors kind of way that you can go through the website in a way that you pick a car and then here are thim similar cars with just different engines or colors but kind of so instead of having just browsing pages upon pages you can just pick a car and then pick a similar and then a similar and kind of get it quicker to the car that you actually want and uh, maybe a way we can figure out what is the best kind of few cars we want on on front to help people browse but they they just really wanted the ranking and i was like i can rank it alphabetically if you want <laughs> and uh, you you thought it was funny and they were very happy with the results so i was like okay okay guys no but it's super super interesting what you're saying here this story highlights also that that how you interact with the the thing that goes into the model or or that comes out of the model so so basically your ui your user experience is super important as well because that informs how you what kind of data you put in what kind of data you get out what kind of uh how you interact how, what you classify what you rank stuff like that so so uh, that this is something that i believe is that ui is not something that you like you pass your model and your backend to and then they make a shiny thing on top of that. I mean, it's super relevant to figure out what's going on. So, a hundred percent. If you don't understand how your model is going to be used at the at the endpoint, where and how it's going to be be used, then it's very hard to adjust. You can do this kind of like small. We call it small head in Israel. You just look at your small point of view and try to just like this is the. Uh, optimal uh, relation uh, this is just the optimal model i can build but actually just choosing the metrics where you evaluate the model is critical i think just imagine you make a classification model and you have something that is very unbalanced and use accuracy and then your great model is very accurate he said no one that's like um let's say you're trying to solve if someone wanted to donate to this very um weird cause that no one has heard of and one in a thousand want to want to donate then the model that say no all the times mm -hmm. actually is very accurate. It's not, it's not inaccurate. You can put it in production, it would be great, but it's just not the metrics you want to use to kind of optimize the model to find the people you want to think about. And maybe it costs you to ask some people you want to, if you ask someone, you want to know that you're asking the guy that has the best probability and not just say no for everything. So if you want to use precision or recall or AUC, it's critical for how the model is going to be used. I think I wanted to do something like it where I would build, uh, maybe we'll have to filter this one later, but I wanted to build a, a website where, <laughs> I wanted to build a website where you you put a name of a Web3 kind of technology or company and it tells you if it's a scam or not. And then uh, my model would just say it's always a scam. And on the long run, it's probably going to be very, very accurate. So yeah. <laughs> we'll <Yeah>. see. <laughs> Scamornot.com. Yeah. That's a great. That's we a, heard it here that, first. <laughs> yeah, we heard it first. That's great. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we're close to wrapping this up. Uh, we could talk on for hours. Maybe we'll invite you to the, uh, to the next uh, uh, for a, a follow-up because there's tons to discuss yeah. and there's tons of interesting stuff in here. A final question uh, for you then maybe. Um, somebody starting in this field, right? somebody, a kid, or somebody switches job or just choosing their studies or whatever, what would you recommend to them? To what should they learn? What should they dive into? What should they do? What should they be? So, I noticed that since I started doing data science and machine learning about ten years ago, 
the study of the field has changed a lot. You can now study it in university, take degrees in specifics like machine learning and NLPs, which I think is fascinating. I think the important thing, like everything in our profession, is to kind of figure out who you are, what you like, and do what fits you. So some people really like just managing with data, doing analytics, or kind of play with columns and run simple models. Some people would love the mathematic aspect or write kind of a more optimized, more sophisticated deep learning models. Some people will enjoy the MLOps slash DevOps aspect of things where you, funny enough, you, you write something and then you deploy it and then you get a coffee, you come back, you see it crashed 10 minutes ago and then you figure out what happened. And it's more about your character and what fits you than what's better. And in that regard, if I would start today, and that's what I do with people I mentor. I tell them, let's take a problem. Let's try to build everything about it. Let's explore the data. Let's clean it. Let's deploy it. Let's set it up. Let's mm -hmm. crash it. And let's build the CI CD for it. And then what did you like? What was the fun part? What you didn't like? Kind of figuring out where you are in that field will help you to kind of have a career that you can sustain and enjoy for a long time. And also be honest with yourself. You might change your mind with time or you evolve as a, as a professional and you want to maybe manage more or want to um, direct more and more into one aspect or another. I think one aspect that is nice in our field that it's kind of easy to kind of slide from one to another. So if you did data science, now doing machine learning is easier than if you just did front end or back end. And if you do kind of machine learning, then now moving into the MLOps and DevOps and server side, it's, it's easier than, again, going from a completely different field. So it's easy to kind of move around. So just figure out what fits you, what fits your character, what fits your talents, and, and follow that and kind of give yourself the room to grow and change and figure those things. Wow, super. Super. I think we yeah. need a million uh, Jonathans in that case exactly. to help people figure out what the, what this is all about. Um, uh, I think there's a lot we need people. We need to help people that are trying to enter this field and saying, well, this, this is what it looks like because it's like one big jungle at the moment for there's so much going on. There's so many, many aspects to it. That's what we've learned today, I think, from you. So thanks for that. Um, we need a million uh, uh, Jonathans, or are we going to capture you in an, in an LLM model? One of this. We'll see what is easier or faster. We'll train that. But uh, thanks so far. Thanks for joining our podcast and uh, for the excellent. Uh, Thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Where where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, and you can go to our company at Zetab at Zetab.com and um, look into it and. That's yeah. awesome. Excellent. We'll put a link in the, in the show notes. We'll uh, put links in the show notes indeed, and also uh, other things you've mentioned in here. Uh, thanks, you. thanks very much. Uh, to the listeners, there's a conference on the 10th of November 2023 called iGrun, of course. Uh, there's still tickets, there's sponsorship possibilities, speaker possibilities. Jonathan will be there as well. We will be there as well, and we hope you will be there as well. So thanks for now, and catch you all later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.